we're starting a new sermon series today, so it's a special day. It's also a special day because it's February. How many people just love February? Heart month, right? Valentine's Day next week, don't forget. Today is Super Bowl Sunday. Did anybody totally forget, like I did? My wife reminded me on Friday. She's like, you know the Super Bowl's on Sunday, right? I had no idea. It just didn't happen. Nobody? Okay. Um, did you see our colors this morning? Blue and red? What's that make you think of? Superman, okay. I think of Pepsi, right? The, the main sponsor of the Super Bowl, right? Okay, nobody's tracking with me. Um, snowstorm, how about that? We got a big snowstorm today. Any cheers for the snowstorm? All right. Everybody got their snowblower, their shovel all waxed up and ready to go? Okay. Yeah, maybe no school tomorrow. There's some to be excited about. We're starting a brand new series with the Gospel Project curriculum. We've come through the Old Testament, through the Gospels. We're into the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 8 today, if you want to turn there. And our new series that's going to run for five weeks. I was going to say four weeks. Good thing I didn't say four weeks. Five weeks is called Guess Who. Anybody ever played the game Guess Who? Yeah? Oh, I brought it here this morning. Figured we could probably play it, right? Uh, Guess Who is one of my son's favorite games right now. And it's a pretty good game. You've, everybody played it? Yeah? You know how this works? So you get this little, uh, what do you call this? Holds, what's here? Six times four. What's six times four? 24. 24 different characters. So we got 24 different characters here. Now the name of the game is your opponent has one specific character in mind represented on on one of these cards. So you pick the card. Now, you have to ask your opponent questions to narrow down the options and figure out who your opponent has out of these 24 characters. Does that make sense? Now, to do that, you ask questions based on the character's appearance and characteristics. Questions like, okay, is your character a man or a woman? Does your character have dark hair or light hair, long hair, short hair? Does your character have glasses? Uh, What's the skin tone of your character? Does your character have jewelry? Does your character... You'd ask all these questions to narrow down the options, and then you get to the end, and hopefully you're left with the one character that your opponent has. And then the name of the game is Guess Who? See if you can get the right character. Now, when I started playing this game with my kids, I found out very quickly that my kids see the characters much differently than I see them. Okay, And they would get confused. I'd ask questions, and instead of putting the guys down, they'd put the girls down. Or instead of putting down all the people with red hair, they would keep all the people with red hair. Or instead of putting down the people with mustaches, they would get mustache confused with beard. So we'd get to the end of the game, and I'd say, okay, look at that. Your character is Leah. And my son would say, no, no, no. My character is Bob, the middle-aged man with a big beard and a bald head. (laughs) What? How did we get there? That's the last person I would have expected to end the game with. Anyway, guess who? It's a good game. Should play it sometime. But in this series that we're calling Guess Who, we're talking about the last people you would expect God to use. The last people on earth you would expect to be transformed by the gospel. 
the least expected person that you would see ministering and moving in the early church. We're going to talk about a number of different characters. Today we're going to talk about three or four characters, and some of them you would least expect God to work in and through to move the church forward across the earth. Does that make sense? Does that ever happen to you? Do you ever judge people based on appearance? Do you, do you have somebody in your life that you're thinking right now, that person? No way. That person would never darken the door of a church. Mike? Mike from work in the other cubicle? No, I'm not even going to waste my breath. He's not interested in spiritual things. You ever do that in your mind? Judge people and assume based on their outward characteristics? That happens. So this series is called Guess Who? Do you remember uh, the prophet Samuel and the conversation he had with the sons of Jesse and with God? He's looking to anoint Israel's true and right first king in the place of Saul. So he calls all the sons of Jesse to come forward. Surely this must be God's anointed, pointing at the tallest, oldest, most handsome son. This must be God's anointed. And then God would say, no, no, no. It's actually the freckled-faced youngest kid out in the pasture who didn't get an invite to the party because God doesn't see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance and God looks at the heart. Guess who? It's not a guessing gospel. It's a global gospel. It's for all people. It's incredibly inclusive. So Acts chapter 8. You ready? Starting in verse 1. We're going to start with a scene that we concluded on uh, just a few short weeks ago. So Acts chapter 8 and verse 1. It starts with this. And Saul, I'm not going to steal too much thunder on Saul because Steve is going to be speaking about Saul from Acts chapter 9. I think it's next week. So don't want to steal his thunder. Saul approved of his execution, Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. This is the diaspora, the dispersion. This is the church scattered throughout the region because of persecution. Do you remember Jesus commissioning to his disciples before he ascended back into heaven? Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. You will receive power. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. You'll be my witnesses in all Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria. And then it says to the uttermost parts of the earth. Look at this verse. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Acts chapter 8 is the embodiment of the Great Commission given in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. And we're going to see that as we read through the story. We're going to see all these places as we move through chapter 8. Is that pretty cool? Uh, Tertullian coined the phrase, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The thing that was supposed to be against the church... The thing that was created to stop the movement of the church actually accelerated the movement of the church from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, as we'll see at the end of this chapter today, which I think is, is pretty cool. But notice who didn't leave Jerusalem. Did you see that? Except the apostles. Now, why didn't they leave Jerusalem? I actually don't know, 
but it's going to be key to a few points that I'm going to make later on. So just keep that one in mind. The apostles stayed in Jerusalem. Now, look at verse 2. It says, Devout men buried Stephen, made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church. What, what do you think of when you hear the word ravaging? I think of a dog, a ravenous dog, right? Ravaging is, is not a nice term. It's ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now just reading that, all of our societal context, all of our cultural context, our emotional attachment to this story, everything points to the fact that this is a bad dude. Right? I mean, this is the guy who's a key player in trying to thwart the mission that Jesus came to start. This guy is the one who kicks down your door and takes away your mom and dad, throws them into prison because they're connected to the local church. And everything in us wants to say, this is a bad guy. Now, if you've been around church for any length of time, you know the rest of the story, but just think about this. Let me ask you this question. In the Bible, are there... Good guys and bad guys. Would you say that there are heroes and villains in the Bible? I just want you to think about that. I want, I want you to let that question resonate. If, if you're participating at home today, think about it. Was Nebuchadnezzar the villain and Daniel and Meshach and Abednego, those guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were they the heroes of the story? Was, was David the hero and Goliath the villain? That's kind of how we interpret scripture at times as we're reading through these narratives, isn't it? I want you to think about that. There is a definite hero in scripture, right? And we see the traces all the way from Genesis to Revelation. Jesus Christ is our hero of the faith. But are there bad guys in scripture? Verse 4, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Now remember who I said stayed in Jerusalem? The apostles stayed in Jerusalem. So, so who's going about preaching the word? It's not the apostles. It's regular, ordinary, everyday church people. It's not the professionals it's not the 12 who were trained with Jesus. It's not the ones who were in the boat when it was sinking and Jesus woke up and said, calm, peace, be still. And they're the ones carrying on the gospel message. It's the ordinary people. It's not the church staff. It's not the pastors. It's not an evangelistic committee or an outreach team. It's the people in the church, normal everyday people, reaching normal everyday people and telling them what Jesus has done in their life. Don't miss that. It's, it's not the apostles. Now we're talking about Philip as we come to verse 5. Let me tell you a bit about Philip before we get into his story. Because Philip's one of the main characters throughout Acts chapter 8. Now it's not Philip, the brother of Nathaniel, who Jesus called, who's one of the disciples, now one of the apostles. It's not that Philip. If you go back just two chapters, Acts chapter 6, there was an issue in the church. And the issue was the Hellenists felt that their widows 
were being left out in the distribution in the church. So their widows weren't receiving the food, the humanitarian resources that the church was handing out. That's how they felt. So the apostles came together and said, look, we need to focus on the word and preaching, but let's build a team. Let's get devout men filled with the spirit, filled with wisdom. Let's select seven of them. The first two men that were selected are Stephen, who we just talked about. He's just been martyred. He preaches the message just the previous chapter. And the second one they select is this guy that we're talking about, Philip. Now, what did they select Philip for? They selected Philip to help facilitate the distribution of food, of resources, to the widows and the helpless, the marginalized in the community. He's a deacon. The term deacon literally means serving tables, waiting tables, servant. He's picked to be a servant, and now we see that he's going to be an evangelist that goes further than any evangelist has gone to this point in early church history. A guy who's selected to wait tables. An ordinary guy who's going about preaching the word. Philip, verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria, proclaimed to them the Christ. The crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. Don't miss that. They, they heard the words of what he said, and they saw the signs of what he did. Do you remember our last sermon series, Show and Tell? They heard what he had to say, and they saw what he did. That's how he preached the gospel message. Verse 7. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them. And many were paralyzed, lame, were healed. So there was much joy in that city. What does the transforming power of the gospel, the message of Jesus, look like in a community? Well, it looks like a community that was trapped in sorrow, turning to joy. What would this look like for the city of Samaria to have much joy in the city because of the gospel, because of the message that was being preached, the message that was being shown. What a beautiful picture. I'd love to have seen that. Thank you so much. You could hear that, could you? I appreciate that. The power of the Spirit through Philip. But guess who lives in Samaria? Guess who? Who is it? Who lives in Samaria? Samaritans. Was that deep? <laughs> we know what the Bible says about Samaritans, doesn't it? We know what Jewish culture believed about Samaritans. We know the prejudice, the stigma that Jews held against Samaritans. And this is where Philip is going to preach in a city of Samaria. You know, the Jews viewed Samaritans as half-breeds, dogs, they would call them. Can you believe that? The city of Samaria, there was an ancient hilltop city that was constructed by King Omri, who turned out to be an evil king. Uh, his son's name was um, Ahab. And guess who his wife was? Jezebel. Not very nice people if you know anything about Ahab and Jezebel and the prophets of Baal and that whole situation. This is Samaria. This, this is the origin of the Samaritans. 
When the southern kingdom was taken away captive, the Assyrians interbred with the northern kingdom, and from that you have the Samaritan people. And the Jews would look at the Samaritans as half-breeds. There was a stigma against them, a suspicion. There was, there was strife between them. The Jews couldn't travel through Samaria, and likewise the Samaritans couldn't travel through Jerusalem, and that's, that's how they treated one another. The Samaritans threw human bones into the temple complex to defile it. It's kind of like a vile prank. This is the situation between these two groups. And here you have Philip preaching the good news of Jesus Christ to the Samaritans. Jesus flipped the script when it came to the Samaritans, didn't he? Do you remember when Jesus talked to the woman at the well? In Samaria, Samaritan woman. And they're sitting there and and she says, what do you have to do with me? You being a Jewish man, I'm a Samaritan woman. You know that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. That's what she's saying in John chapter 4. Or do you remember Jesus' story that he told about the kingdom? About the good Samaritan, right? The good Samaritan is all throughout pop culture, whether people realize that story is actually in the Bible or not. Jesus taught that story and he used the least likely character to be the hero in the story. He used the person that the Jewish religious crowd would never consider to be the hero as the hero in the story, the one who stopped and cared for the man who had been beaten or robbed on the side of the road. Jesus flipped the script on Samaritans. What about you? Are there people that you have in mind right now who maybe have hurt you in the past? There's a rift in your relationship. Maybe they betrayed you. They turned their back on you. Maybe they're from the other side of the tracks, right? And they're just different. You just don't associate there. Is the gospel for those kind of people? Does God's love extend to that crowd, those people, those names that you're thinking of right now? I'm I'm not going to tell that person about God. I've got a lot of people that I want to tell about Jesus before I go to those people. But guess who the gospel's for? Those people. Samaritans. Verse 9. Let's talk about one of those Samaritans. Very interesting character. There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic. Interesting, right? He had practiced magic in the city and he amazed the people of Samaria saying that he himself was somebody great. Do you know anybody like that who claims to be great? <laughs> Can you imagine an interaction like that? Like you meet at the at Superstore. Hi, I'm Dan. I'm great. Like Tony the Tiger, great. Nobody says that. Somebody might say that about somebody, but social rule number one, don't call yourself great, right? That just makes sense. Called himself great. Verse 10. Everyone in Samaria, they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. Isn't that scary? Maybe, maybe you could uh, paraphrase that to say he calls himself the great I am, maybe. The power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Now let me say this. I don't think this is sleight of hand like pulling a coin from behind their ear. I don't think it's card tricks. I think this is some dark black magic. I think it's powered by hell. 
I think there's demonic power involved here because we just read about how Philip cast demons out of all these people in Samaria. So there's a lot of demonic activity in this place. And here you have a sorcerer, a wizard, a witch, who's amazing these people with his dark magic. Let me ask you this question. Is the gospel for somebody like that? I've talked to people who practice witchcraft. I've heard stories about the occult. Is the gospel for them too? Does God's love extend to people like Simon the Magician? Watch this. Verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God, the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. This, this is probably the point where... Um, Maybe Simon the Magician gets a little concerned. People, people are uh, paying attention to Philip. I thought I was the one that they paid attention to. I thought it was my magic tricks that amazed them. Now they're all paying attention to Philip. They're seeing the, the demonic possessions that he's casting out demons. They're seeing that he's healing people. He's, he's performing works in the power of the Spirit. You think he's getting a little self-conscious here? You think he's getting a little insecure? But look at this, verse 13. Even Simon, even that guy, even the dark magic practicer, even Simon himself believed. Luke's almost writing this with, with a tone of surprise, isn't he? Like even this guy was transformed by the gospel. Even Simon himself believed after being baptized, he continued with, with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, I want to remind you, who's Philip? He's a guy who's selected to help wait on tables and feed the marginalized. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, now he is amazing, the one who was amazing the town with his dark magic. <laughs> Philip is amazing the wizard. How wild is that? Incredible. Uh, let's move here to verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem, because remember they stayed in Jerusalem, do you remember that point? They heard that Samaria had received the word of God. They sent to them Peter and John from Jerusalem who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now we need to do some explanation here. We need to understand this scripture. Because this isn't normative. I don't believe that this is a case study for how the Holy Spirit comes to individuals who've trusted Christ as their Savior. People have used this passage to twist the idea that you trust Christ as your Savior, you have your sins forgiven, you have new life, but then there's this other event, this supernatural event that takes place where then the Holy Spirit comes. And it's associated with supernatural, uh, speaking in tongues. It's associated with all of these different things apart from your original point of salvation. And I don't believe that's what this is teaching. We've been going through the whole narrative of the Bible. Do you remember all the way back to the book of Genesis? 
We've talked about a lot of beginnings, right? In Genesis, you have creation. Then you have the flood. Then you have Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant and the blessing going to all nations through Abraham. Then you have the remnant returning. Then you have Jesus Christ coming. Then you have Resurrection Sunday. And then in Acts chapter 2, you have the day of Pentecost, the birth of the church, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church, tongues of fire over their head. They were speaking in languages known to all of the traveling people who are in Jerusalem for the Passover. You have all of these new beginnings. Here's another new beginning. The gospel is moving. The movement of the people of the way, the Christians as they're becoming known, the people who follow Jesus Christ, the movement of the church is moving out from Jerusalem in a big way for the first time. It's a new beginning in the history of the church. And to signify a new beginning, the apostles are there in person. Just think, if this hadn't have happened, how many people would say, Samaritans? Really? Samaria? Turn to Jesus? I don't believe it. Must have been false. But now they can say, no, no, no. John and Peter, the apostles, the ones who were with Jesus, they traveled down from Jerusalem. They were there in person. And through the laying on of the apostles' hands, we have received the same Holy Spirit as everybody in Jerusalem. It was to signify the movement of the church from Jerusalem, that this great commission is now being accomplished. Now, let's move on to verse 18, cover some ground. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, watch this, Simon the magician, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Look at what he wants. And look at how he tries to get it. He's offering them money, not for the Holy Spirit itself, but for the power. He's still stuck serving the God of power and control. He wants to amaze these people, and he tries to buy it with money. You know, this became known in the early church as simony, named after Simon himself. You see, in the early church, positions in the church were highly regarded in society. And people would pay money to get the office in the church so that they could promote their own agenda, move higher up the rungs in society. And they referred to that as simony, trying to buy your way up the spiritual ladder. And it's named after this guy. Simon the magician. Now, was he truly saved or was he just in it for the power? I don't really know. Is he a false convert or is he a, a new believer who still doesn't have things figured out? He needs to be discipled. He needs to be trained. He needs somebody to mentor and partner with him and be a disciple making disciples just like we're here to be disciples making disciples. I don't know. But he tries to buy the power of the spirit with money. And watch Peter's response. Do you remember Peter's response to Ananias and Sapphira when they lied about money? Well, this is the same Peter who's now being asked if they can buy the power of the Spirit with money. Look at what he says. Verse 20, Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you. He pulls no punches, doesn't he? Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Exclamation point. 
(laughs) You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours. Pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you said may come upon me. Some powerful language in there, isn't it? You thought you could buy the gift of God with money. And how many people think that they're going to make it to heaven because of their financial endeavors or or business or... You thought you could buy the works of God with money. You thought you could buy the gift of God with money. That's why it's a gift, so that nobody can boast. Not by works, not by money. You know, I've... What, what about the, the arrogance and the greed that Simon shows? You know, maybe, maybe you don't know anybody who's into witchcraft or into black magic. Maybe that's not something that's on your radar, but... What what about somebody who's arrogant and prideful, who thinks they can buy everything, who thinks they can get ahead in society with their money or with their social standing, with their wealth? Does God's love extend to those people? Is the gospel for those people? Remember the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, all of these laws I have kept from my youth, and Jesus says, one thing you lack, go and sell all that you have, give to the poor, then you'd be rich in heaven. And he went away sorrowful because he had much. He couldn't give it up. Could Simon give it up? Was he able to? Did he repent? Did he beg for forgiveness? Did he give up that God of control, thinking that he could buy his way up the ladder? I don't know. Church history tells us that Simon the magician actually becomes a heretic in the early church. I don't know if that happened or not. But maybe he could never give up that God of control. You remember to talk, are you, sorry, are you ready to talk about one more character before we close today? And it's a special character. I like this character. You've, you've probably heard about him. We're going to talk about the Ethiopian eunuch. Verse 26, now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Now I want you to think about this. Philip's an ordinary guy doing an extraordinary work by the power of the Spirit in a weird place, Samaria, with a weird person, Simon the magician. And God says, okay, I'm going to take you from the work that you're doing and I'm going to send you to a desert place on the side of the road on the way to Gaza. Wouldn't Philip think to himself like... um, Seriously? Don't, don't you see what's happening here, God? Like these Samaritans are turning to you. They're putting their faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. We're seeing healings. We're seeing exorcisms. We're seeing, I've got Simon the magician over here and he says he's turned to you, but he needs to be discipled. Are you really going to pull me away from all of this so that I can go to a desert place? What's the point of that? That's what I would want to ask. But look, look at what Philip does. He rose and went. He doesn't ask a single question, doesn't say a frustrated prayer, doesn't talk to somebody about God's will before he gives in. He just got up and he went. And there, on the side of the road in a deserted place on the way to Gaza, what's in Gaza? There was an Ethiopian, a eunuch. You see, God wasn't sending him to a place... God was sending him to a person. 
Maybe today you see God sending you to places that don't make sense, but maybe what he's really doing is sending you into the paths and crossings of people who need him. <coughs> An Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who is in charge of all her treasure. It's a pretty high official. He had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Some might say coincidence. I would like to say this, this is a God moment. This is a God incident. God set this up. God orchestrated this. In a deserted place, here's somebody who's reading God's word, who needs somebody to help him understand what he's reading. Look at what he's reading. The Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him. Just think about that. Philip ran to him. Now, let me tell you a little bit more about the Ethiopian eunuch before we get too far, okay? You've probably heard the term Ethiopian eunuch. Let's dig into it a little bit more. Now, modern-day Ethiopia is a few countries south of Egypt. You head to Egypt through Sudan, you get to Ethiopia. That's probably not the Ethiopia that's being referred to in this place and time. Uh, it wasn't called Ethiopia until 440 AD. And most believe that at this point in time, Ethiopia is a reference to anybody who had darker skin. Ethiopian was a reference to the black community. So the first, the first note is that Philip is carrying the love of God to another race, another people group different from himself. Think, think about this. Almost 2,000 years ago, Luke is recording the gospel going from one race to another. Now, th this is not the first Ethiopian eunuch that we see in the Bible. If you go back to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah was saved from a cistern, a well where he was thrown to die by an Ethiopian eunuch named Ebed-Melech. Very similar story. Now, Ebed-Melek is tied to the land of Cush. Cush surrounds the area of the Red Sea next to Egypt. And it has a lot of ties to Egyptian culture. The name Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, Candace is not her given name, it's her title. Candace is the name for a royal woman, a royal overseer, a queen. She's the queen of the Ethiopians. Now, if you look back at their artwork, if you look back at their culture, if you look back at their pyramids, yes, they made pyramids, they're very similar to Egyptian culture. They would have been linked very closely to the land of Egypt. Now, if you're a Jewish person, what do you know about Egypt? Let's talk about 400 years of slavery. How about that? The book of Exodus, the ten plagues, running out, Pharaoh chasing them through the Red Sea, through the wilderness 40 years to the promised land. Oh yeah, Egypt, it's synonymous with bondage, with captivity, with slavery. This person very likely was viewed linked to the Egyptians. So think about the stigma that Jewish people would have against this Ethiopian eunuch. Now the last part. Let's talk about the fact that he's a eunuch. And I'm going to keep this as PG as I can. 
this guy was neutralized in his gender, okay? If you read Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse 1, people like him are not welcome into the assembly. Now, it says that he had come to Jerusalem to worship. Apparently, he had Jewish customs. He had Jewish scripture. We see that there is a sect of these individuals who, who link themselves to Jewish religion in this area that he is from. He's going to Jerusalem to worship. What a sad moment when he showed up to the temple and they said, You? <laughs> now, this place isn't for people like you. I'm sorry, you can't come in. You can't join the assembly. You can't be with God's people in the place set up to worship God. Do you remember last week we talked about church experiences and going to a church for the first time because of what we were wearing or the fact that we weren't members, we weren't welcomed, couldn't sit with the people, had to sit in the balcony? Stuff like that still happens, but this would have been this guy's worship experience. He goes to the temple and no, 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 no. You're a eunuch. This place isn't for people like you. Is the gospel, is the love of God for people like that? Maybe somebody who links themselves to a gender identity or a sexual preference that doesn't link up with yours. Is the gospel for somebody like that? Does God's love extend to people like that? The Ethiopian. Spirit said to Philip, go over and join his chariot. Philip doesn't give a second thought. It says that Philip ran to him. I love that picture. You remember that when the prodigal son returns home, what does the father do? He runs to him, embraces him. Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? Notice he doesn't say, let me tell you what you're reading. He asks him a question. He engages in conversation. And he said, how can I understand unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. How incredible is that? This is the guy that's in charge of all the treasure of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. Yeah, come up, sit down, help me understand this. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading went like this from the book of Isaiah. Like a sheep... He was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation, for his life is taken away from the earth? <clears throat> That's not a coincidence. That's a God moment. Do you remember when I was preaching through the book of Isaiah, and I had the two stick people? Do you remember that? And I took all of the labels, the sin labels, off of the one that represented us, and I put it around the neck of the one that represented Christ. He bore our grief. By his wounds we are healed. This is one of the clearest explanations of the gospel in the prophets, in the Old Testament. And this is the very part that the Ethiopian eunuch is reading through when Philip just shows up and gets invited to sit down and explain it. The eunuch said to Philip, about whom I asked, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Who's it talking about? Philip's like, well, hey, I'm Philip the evangelist. Let me tell you what he's talking about right here. Verse 35, Philip opened his mouth. Do you think Philip would have had the opportunity to open his mouth if he was still on the other side of the street on the sidewalk? Just 
like shouting the truth from that side because I can't come any closer. I don't want to be associated with Ethiopian eunuch over there. No, instead he, he runs to him. He's obedient. He asks some questions, engages in conversation, and sits with him. Jesus was accused of being a friend of sinners and tax collectors, a drunkard and a glutton because he sat and ate with those people, that person. He opened his mouth, beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? He commanded the chariot to stop. They went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. Now you remember when Philip was preaching in Samaria and there was much joy in that city? It's the same term. The gospel for the Ethiopian eunuch was the same gospel for the town, the city in Samaria. And they responded in joy and rejoicing. Who knows how far this went? I wish scripture would have told us when the Ethiopian eunuch returned to the land of Cush or to Ethiopia, here's how the spread of the gospel continued. Started in Jerusalem, then Judea, then to Samaria, and then this Ethiopian eunuch, because of the faithful, obedient testimony of Philip, carried it to, I wish we knew the rest of the story. But you see, the rest of the story is still being played out, isn't it? Because that gospel message has gone from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Ethiopia, Rome, and now here we stand, Canada. And the gospel message has traveled here. As I close off, I just want you to think about this. Who is that gospel message for? Who does God's love actually extend to? Is anybody left out of the picture? When Steve talked about Romans two weeks ago, he said the gospel is for the whole world. We say that, we preach that, we read that. Do we believe that? Or do we have people in mind that we label those people, that group, that person? Yeah, that guy, he's never going to respond, so don't waste your breath. Well, actually, guess who the gospel's for? It's for those people. It's for that person. Maybe the person that's been on your mind in this sermon that you're thinking, "Ah, not that person. Maybe that is the person that God is saying, you get in there. You sit with them. You ask them questions. You be obedient to my leading. You bump your shopping cart into their shopping cart so you can have a conversation in the supermarket and you tell them about my love. How about we end with that? Let's pray. Father God, I just want to praise you for who you are today. God, thank you so much for this beautiful chapter of scripture that illustrates your gospel message, your good news, your love in the faith of Je- face of Jesus Christ through the power of the Spirit going from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and all the way to Africa. God, we thank you so much that your love is so inclusive that you would say that you so love the whole world that you would give your son for people like us. Jesus, thank you so much. Help us not to be the judge and decide who's worthy of your love, but to realize that none of us are worthy of your love. It's only because of Jesus Christ that we have access to a relationship with you. Thank you so much. God, if there are any under the sound of my voice today, online, driving in the car, listening to the podcast, sitting here in this room, God, I pray that those people 
would realize that the gospel is for people like them because it's for people like us. Thank you so much for how you love us, God. In Jesus' name, amen.